heart to fellowship with you. It's refreshing to us to come down here and relax, be looked after very well. <laughs> Thank you for our hosts. We've enjoyed our time very much. <coughs> one day I will get a new voice box. Of course, this one's getting worn out. <laughs> <coughs> we have looked at, uh, where are we up to? Revelation, that's right. <laughs> we are doing the third time that Christ is seen in this book of Revelation. Take your Bibles, Revelation 19. We'll be at, yeah. Revelation 19, we will read from verse 11 in our Bibles down to verse 16. Revelation 19, verse 11 through to 16. John said, I saw heaven standing open. Remember last time it's just torn or a door is open. The whole of heaven is now open because there's a lot to come out. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. The same name he presents himself to the Laodicean church is the same name he's known by here. It's very sobering. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's coming back. Let's bow in prayer. We'll come to the word. Father, we step into the closing scene in this world's history before you come to reign on the earth. We realize what a message there is in this book for the day in which we live. We look ahead, but we look ahead like the early church did to your coming, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour. We're waiting to be caught up. We're looking for his coming. That is where our eyes are fixed but you have enlightened us that what lies ahead for this world, they need to realize there is a great need to get right with God before the closing days of darkness, the great and notable day of the Lord comes. This strange work that you will make and cut it short in righteousness. We ask, Lord, as we step into the Scriptures, You'll illuminate our hearts. You'll stir our spirits. 
you'll give us confidence to know and to trust you fully that you have everything under your control and we are in your hands no matter what comes our way because we know we are going to come back following you as you come to earth to set up your kingdom. We thank you for the word of God. We pray you'll write it on our hearts and give us that eager expectation to see your kingdom come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an amazing scene before us. I said there are three times within this book of Revelation. The key to the book is Apocalypsis. Take the lid off and you'll see what's inside. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is very strongly put this last time. The three times we've looked at, the first time he is in the midst of the candlesticks. The second time he's taken the seven sealed scroll. Here he is riding a white horse. And where is he? Let's ask the questions as to uh, what information we can get from what we have read. If I asked you, where is he? What is the answer? He's in heaven. Is that an answer complete? Ah, so we are watching him come, aren't we, from heaven to earth. That's what's happening. Why is he coming? Now, we're not told here the real reason why he's coming. He's coming in terrible judgment. He's, coming, he, he's going to be clothed with a garment spotted with blood. He's trodden the winepress. He's coming. His two-edged sword is out of his mouth. He will smite them down. He'll speak and it will take place. He doesn't fight with weapons we do. And someone mentioned this morning, Colin, I think it was, Hezekiah. Remember the battle? They went out and they were all dead men. 185,000 in one night. That's a pretty good battle. And you didn't do a thing. He did it. That's the kind of God who's unveiled to us in the Scriptures. Israel is an earthly nation. Israel is God's testimony to the rest of the world. He chose her out. The Spain, the French, the Russians, Germans, whoever you turn. I went through the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem when it was done up. No, no, I'm back in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem. <laughs> and the Holocaust Museum, I'm walking through where they have kept all the records that the Germans took of movie and sound and what they did. And Eisenhower, I think Dwight Eisenhower was the general of the Allied armies and he said these words as far as I understand. He said, you must keep every bit of evidence because the day will come when they will deny this ever happened. Well, I think he was a bit prophetic. All right? So I'm going through this Yad Vashem Museum and I'd got to that section where <coughs> there was an appeal made to the nations because they had been so treated in Europe that they wanted somewhere to send them. And as I walk from one side to the other, because as you go from one side to the other, there is the statement 
by the Australian, um, what do we call him? Prime Minister. <laughs> Australian Prime Minister. You know what it was? It was offered to Australia, take some of the Jews. We do not want racism in our country. We've got it. As you do, it will be done to you. It's a principle God works on when we're dealing with nations. You can read it in the book of Joel. You can read in other Old Testament prophets. So I, I watch the harvest in our nation of the consequences of making a decision to reject mercy to a people who have been so treated. So when we step into this area, he, he is coming from heaven. And he's coming to judge the nations. And it's necessary he comes because when you read the book of Zechariah, they have taken Jerusalem, they are raping the women, they are pillaging the city and they are sending them off into captivity. Evil has triumphed in the world and his feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. He's coming to make war. That's why he's coming. And we have the picture here of what will happen. So what is it all about? He is coming from heaven to earth. We are told where his feet will stand because that's where the nations will be gathered. Which is all through your Bible. What is he like? He's like the sun shining in its strength. <coughs> That day is a notable day. The sun will turn into darkness, the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord comes. What is the sign of his coming, he told us. As the lightning shines from one end of the heavens to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. If you put it in its context, there's darkness and he is going to lighten the world with his glory. If John fell dead, the world is going to acknowledge his presence. They will not be able to deny the presence of his coming. It says, when they tell you, he's in the secret place, he's in the desert, don't believe them. He said, as the lightning shines, this is a sign of my coming, as the lightning shines from one end of heaven to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. We can't grasp the clouds of Shekinah glory. This is the full expression of God. And he is angry. We've seen his expression of intensity of love, of grace and of mercy, time through history. But now, once he is angry, who can stand? When once he's angry, who can stand? So we come to a scene which is amazing to us and the emphasis is on him. But he's not unaccompanied. When he's riding his white horse, is he alone? The Bible says distinctly, he is not alone. Who is following him? the armies of heaven. Who are the armies of heaven? Well, your Bible tells you they are clothed in white, clean linen, clean and white. But this man who's writing this white horse and is coming to do this 
terrible destruction. He's a bridegroom. You've just had a marriage in heaven. The bride has made itself ready. The only time hallelujah is used in our New Testament is in this chapter 19 of Revelation. Three hallelujahs have to do with the judgment of Babylon. The last hallelujah is hallelujah, the marriage of the Lamb has come. So the whole aspect of a great expectation of a marriage. What about it? You know when Jesus was on earth, they asked John, who are you, John? Who are you? He said, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bride, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I've heard his voice, my joy is fulfilled. Well, who's the bride? Now, Paul says, I'm going to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So there is a pure virgin espoused or engaged to Christ now and Paul's work in ministry with the epistles we have is to prepare that bride for the bridegroom, isn't it? He's the apostle to the Gentile world. The whole Gentile world, we are watching a harvest at present take. Iran has the quickest growing church in the whole world at the present time. There's an immensity of a work going on. We are watching in Israel the amazing things which we have seen Jews for a long time and they are very, very hard and you've got very, very few Messianic Jews. But we are watching an openness start to take place where they are starting to read the forbidden book, the New Testament. In fact, all the tour guides have to study the New Testament. <laughs> very interesting. So when you come to this whole area, we're watching God at work. God is getting his church still. It's still coming together. He's not finished with the church. Not yet. So the church is still being worked on by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is still going out. And we cannot tell when our opportunity will finish. I know when mine will, probably, if he doesn't come, I'll drop dead. Right? Age tells me it's not far off. <laughs> but you can't predict the date. And you can't predict the date of his coming. But we know he's coming. True? So he's coming from heaven. Who is the army? Because your Bible says in your text, they are clothed in linen, clean and white. Where did they get that from? Read your bride. To her was granted, she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. His bride has made herself ready. The marriage takes place. And according to your context, the bridegroom leaves heaven. And I asked you, because we saw a, 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 a film kind of here last night, eh? And I watched the bridegroom and I watched the bride and they seemed to be happy together after the wedding. He didn't just leave her and go somewhere else. He took her with her, with him. So when Christ leaves heaven, which we have the clear picture of, who is he taking with her, him, himself? The bride. She's coming back with him. I have never seen a wedding where the bridegroom just went off, you're married, and he goes and just leaves her in the church where they got married. It would be a very strange wedding if that took place. Very strange. It's not what is expected in a wedding. There is a time when they are together from that point. 
that's marriage. And in our life, till death, us do part, and you've been given eternal life, you're with him forever. That's the message. So he comes from heaven, and his bride is accomplishing, accompanying him as he comes down to earth. He's coming to make war. And here is one of the most terrible scenes in the whole of the Bible, vastly difficult to grasp in its, in its catastrophic nature. Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. In the, my NIV, it's called, at the heading, God's Day of Vengeance and Redemption. Let's link the two together. Verse, chapter 63, verse 1. Question. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra? Now, that's down in the area around Petra, it's in Jordan across from uh, Elat, uh, across in the area of Jordan. It's desert, all right? Who is this? And he comes from there. That's where he's coming from. Who is he? It says this, His garments are stained crimson or red. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? So there's an a sense of immensity of power. Who is this? Why are your garments stained red like that? That's the question. Answer. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to say. We have only one person who will fit that character. It is I, mighty. And he speaks in righteousness. Question. Why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. I don't know whether you can imagine it in your thinking. But you harvest the grapes when they're full ripe. They've reached full maturity. You harvest them all and you throw them into a pit. Not using machines, you get in there and you tread the lot down till it's juice. Why are your garments like someone who's trodden the winepress? Because when you tread, the juice splatters out and you get it on you. Why are you like that? That's the question. Going in your text. Answer. I have trodden the winepress alone. I have. So it's the identity of the action of one person. His action at redemption, Hebrews 1, when he had by himself purged our sins. It was alone. Now we come to another time, he's alone. I have trodden the winepress alone. This is what it says. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. 
their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. You have just had a vision of Revelation 19, haven't you? That's what you've seen. You see, what you see in Revelation, you are going to pick up through your Bible. It is not just one isolated description. And of all the happenings in these seven years, this is the most catastrophic and violent in action that we see because it's humanity that is affected. It's humanity, the ones he created for himself, for his glory. And now he is dealing with them in their absolute hatred and rebellion of himself. So this is we go on. Verse 4, please notice, what was in his heart at this point? We are fixed in time here. It is a day. What kind of day is it? It is the day of vengeance. Remember, we read Isaiah 61. The acceptable year of the Lord, he closed the book, he gave it back, the scroll gave it back, sat down. This day is this scripture. Why didn't he go on? And the day of vengeance of our God. It's here, isn't it? And he says, to comfort all that mourn in Zion. You ever read the Day of Atonement? They have no goats to offer today to do the Day of Atonement. They have no temple in which to do it. One day they will, in unbelief of their Messiah, they will carry it out in the near future. The Day of Atonement, they will do. And they're all prepared for it. But, when you come to this, it says, the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Read Zechariah, end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13. You're going to see Israel broken totally before God. They have no strength left. Every household will be separated. They'll be crying out to God and they'll look on him whom they pierced. They will mourn for him, mourn, as for an only son, a firstborn son. Every household, but weeping. They will recognize they killed their Messiah. What a time. What a time. Read Joseph if you don't understand what it meant to Joseph and his brothers. Here you've got Jesus and the tribes of Israel, every household apart, weeping. And in your King James, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain will be opened for sin and uncleanness. If you want to know where that is, Leviticus 16 in your Bible is the day of atonement and that is the fountain for sin and uncleanness. Leviticus 16 sits in the middle of Leviticus. Before it and after it is sin and uncleanness. That day is the day of atonement. It takes one full chapter in the book of Leviticus. Two goats. 
A fountain will be opened, and it's for Israel. A fountain for sin and uncleanness. And they will recognize they killed their Messiah, but he died for their sins. And that's why it says, when you go through your prophecy, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon and the blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. But whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That day, Yahweh, the nail and the hand, look at him. He was our Messiah and we did it to him. The weeping, the mourning, terrible but God will turn their mourning into gladness. Forgiven. Forgiven. Reconciled. Listen carefully. If the casting away of them meant the reconciling of the world so you and I could be saved, what will the receiving of them mean? It will be like life from the dead. Can these dry bones live? Spirit of God will move and you're going to have a nation born in a day. The immensity of what takes place here at this time on the earth is the culmination, the closing scene <coughs> of the prophetic words of God through the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing. I will continue to read down on this and then I'll go to Back to Revelation. We read from verse 4, Isaiah 63, verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled. There was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and I poured their blood on the ground. That's the God we worship. We don't ever talk about this because we have little concept of the utter rebellious nature that we have from Adam. That which we got from Adam our attitudes are darkened. Our mind is alienated from the things of God. But when God comes with his gospel to us and he shines in, we begin to recognize what we were like in his sight, but how powerful is the redeeming work of Christ by his blood. And we've sung about it a lot today. This redeeming blood and its power. These here, a day is coming when this will take place. The place is given, Basra, back down there, it's given. Who is it? It's him. What's he doing? He's treading the nations in his anger. And the blood stains his garments. Take your Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. No, sorry, Revelation 14. I've got it wrong. Revelation 14. Verse 
We read from verse 17. I'm not dealing with the first harvest. I'm on the second harvest. Revelation 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Mine's got a, marg- uh, a, a marginal rendering, 180 miles or 300 kilometres. Do you know what the horse's bridle is? You, you, you're, you're country people. <laughs> you know how the horse has the bridle, and he has the bridle. The bridle's about that high off the ground. The blood is that depth in the whole valley for 200 miles nearly. That's the blood. That's a lot of people being trodden down. A lot of people. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. God has decreed the future and the events. But in his anger, his wrath, he sustains him and he treads them down in his anger so he he is seen as clothed with blood which has trodden them down in his wrath. What is Armageddon? It's a place. Take your Bible. Turn to Revelation 16. Verse 16. We'll just read that one. These deceptive spirits that leads the kings of the world to come to a certain place. Revelation 16, 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place. In Hebrew, it is called Armageddon. There is a place. It is called Armageddon. I stood on Mount Carmel. You look across and Megiddo's over in the valley there. And so Armageddon is the ridge of Megiddo, the mountain range of Megiddo. There is a vast valley laid out before you called the Jezreel Valley. This vast valley, as we look down, and our friends, we were staying up there, and when you look down, you see two white strips like this in the valley. And uh, we, we was, had um, a couple we stayed with. One is Australian. No, yeah. What is uh, American? Yeah. And sometimes when we would talk to him on Skype, you couldn't talk because of the sound of the jets passing over their house. But when you stand on the top there and you look down the valley, here's these two strips of white. What are they? There's nothing else, just two strips. The plains and everything is underground. They come out and they're in the air before they come out of the ground. And they're always in pairs, always following one another. And he said to us, we never know whether this war is broken out or not. It's just constant. 
And when they come back, they go underneath. There's nothing on top, just two strips where they land, like that. This is this Valley of Jezreel. And where are they heading? They're heading to Gaza. Whenever there's uh, something done down in Gaza, they come out and they're down to Gaza. There's another one that has to go north to the Golan when things happen up there. They're in constant watchfulness. I have never lived in such a place because we don't get it. Every morning, you're, you're, you're there. We were up on Galilee at a place called Poria with our friends we know. And every morning, bang, 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 and the, the windows all crattle, crack, crack, you know, but shake. Why? They're going through the sound barrier. Zoom, zoom. Every day they're on the watch. We don't live like that. This is what they live like. This is the tension that exists in a country that's surrounded by those who hate them. We don't live like that. We're in the world. We're not of the world. And don't marvel if the world hates you. But here, there is a nation. This is a nation. We're not speaking of the church. We're speaking of a nation, a little nation. And it is surrounded by hate. That's its position. So we come to a point here where God is going to step in. And when he steps in, there's going to be a valley to that depth of blood. Why? Because God will invite all the birds to come to the supper of the great God. Take your Bible, turn back to Revelation 19. Verse 17, we've read down to there, he's coming back, he's going to tread the winepress of God's wrath, we're told that's what he's going to do. Verse 17, Revelation 19 and verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in mid-air, come, gather together for the great supper of God. So what kind of supper does God provide? for the birds of this world and is listed the kinds of people whose blood has been shed in this valley. Please notice the wording. You are going to eat the flesh of who? Kings. Remember, I've gathered the kings. I've gathered the nations. You're going to eat the flesh of kings. Your generals, meaning the heads of the armies who have come, you are going to eat their flesh. It's going to be all in this valley. We don't like things. This is too horrific. Your movies mean nothing when you come to the Bible. They cannot even imagine what this, because this is God. Now, if you were in Israel in the days of Hezekiah, how would you have felt when there's an army that is threatening you right on your doorstep round your, your city, you get up in the morning, they're all dead. 185,000. That's a lot of dead bodies on the ground in one night, isn't it? God is not capable of doing things. God could never do a thing like this. You couldn't have that. Listen, it's written as it happens. And all I'm doing is putting scripture with scripture with scripture to show you we are not looking at something imaginary or allegorically, we are looking at reality. That's how it is written. And that's how we must accept our understanding. God is going to step in finally 
when he has to for the sake of his own people. That's why he comes. All right, this is what happens. Flesh of kings, flesh of generals, mighty men, horses, their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And he says, this is the supper of the great God. Sun supper. We just can hardly imagine it. You imagine, see whether I'm in Fiji, I say, all right, from Suva to Lotoka, there is a great valley and it's full of blood and flesh to that depth. You've got to travel hours by the bus to get to one place to the other. That's the kind of valley. I've got to put it into something they understand. It's immense. It's beyond our grasp what is going to take place on this earth. Earth has no idea. The, the governments of this world have no idea what lies ahead. I've seen, going back from Australia, I've seen Armageddon as a movie. Totally man's imagination. So when you come to the Bible, we don't need a movie, we've got the description. I saw and I heard and he's describing what he saw and what he heard. And if the Bible doesn't speak to us as it spoke to John, I saw and I heard, we have not felt the impact of truth. That this is the God we worship and he's just in what he's doing. Because the angels cry out, you are just in what you're doing. So we'll go down in your text. I'll go down to the last section. <coughs> Verse 21. Speaking of getting rid of the false prophet and the beast. Verse 21. The rest of them that came uh, with... The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. What sword is in the mouth of the rider on the horse? The word of God. He speaks and it is. The rest of them were killed by the sword and you get that. He will destroy with the brightness of his coming. Here he is. They are killed. The sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. I'm sorry, you're going to have to accept it. It is the word of God. We just don't like what we read. We present a God of love, and it's true. A God of immensity of love, and it's true. But there is also another side to God himself, and that is the side of justice, of vindication. Take your Bible, turn to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 1. 
Joel chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, the timing is given when that happens. Verse 2, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat which means the Lord judges. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, remember his treasured possession, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. God says it's my land, it's my people and you did this to them. They cast lots for my people, traded boys for prostitutes, they sold girls for wine that they might drink. That's what you did. And it's my treasured possession you were doing it to. So you go down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. I think you're seeing it. Prepare for war. There are other times the nations have armed themselves and things have happened. But there is across the world a preparing for war now. Unless you're deaf. <laughs> Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. So there's an intensity of action. What are you to do? Beat your plowshares into swords and your, your pruning hooks into spears. What's that mean? Agriculture is sacrificed for the sake of war. Tell me, what are you going to get? I'll tell you what, you'll get famine. There are seals broken and one of those is famine. Terrible. When you have war, when you beat your plowshares into, into spears and your pruning hooks into spears, uh, yeah, <laughs> plowshares into swords, <laughs> I'm getting bad, pruning hooks into spears, when you do that, you're sacrificing food and it's happening and it's happening very quickly and it's not just that they're doing that God is affecting the weather and agriculture is affecting I'm a farmer I know what's happening it's affected worldwide it's affected and we'd have to be blind to say there's not famine coming like they're experiencing in Africa Everything is changing. When Obama came in, he said, I'm in for change, and God is also in for change. We are seeing things change, and we don't think there will be a return back to the conditions we once knew. In fact, uh, it's very difficult for them now to know what the next week is going to be like for weather. We've been wrong enough up home for long enough. <laughs> Things are not going to be predictable by natural means because God is stepping in to show that he is in control of the weather. Climate change is a reality. Listen to it. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, cold and heat shall not cease. That's climate change. You're always going to have winter. You're always going to have summer. It'll always be there. It doesn't tell you what degree it will be there but it will always be there 
So forget about what you're hearing. God has ordained climate to change. Summer to winter, winter back to summer. It's there. Day and night shall not cease. So who do we worship today? We worship Mother Nature. She is in control of climate change, isn't she? That's what happens. I read Weather Zone. I'm in agriculture. We look at what's coming ahead and repeatedly we're looking at Mother Nature did this. Not once is some action that takes place attributed to God. Not once. When we were in America, when that Katrina hit, not once for two weeks on television was there any acknowledgement at all that maybe God was speaking. It was Mother Nature. Mother Nature is angry. That's why you've got to like it is. All right? So the worship of a goddess called Mother Nature has swept the world. That's what's happened. We are idolatrous by nature. It's all through your schooling system, isn't it? You go into schooling, they are given assignments on climate change, they're given all these kind of things. Well, who is in control of the weather? Jeremiah had no doubts. He said, the idols do not give rain. The clouds do not give rain of themselves. It is you, O God, therefore we will pray to you. So we understand there is a mindset where we understand God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and one of them is rain that is gentle and causes our crops to grow. When he withholds the rain, he's getting a message across. No, he should be. What is that? It's God we've got to turn to because he's the source of what we haven't got. When I'm reading Amos, I'm thinking of um, home, like we're in severe drought. Some people are worse than we are. And we have a friend, two valleys across from us, comes to the church we've known for a long time. He has received more than normal rain on his property. And we're two valleys over and we missed it. <laughs> what does it say in Amos? I send rain on one city and I withhold it from another. The reason I'm getting you to turn back and repent of your ways. That's why he tells Amos. Amos told them. That's why he does it. I'm watching, I'm watching it in our district. Here is my, our friend here, Daniela is a German, married to... to um, who's he married to? <laughs> Brendan. Brendan's Australian. And the year before, they brought this property and the year before, they hadn't been getting rain. When they weren't getting rain, they complained. Transfer it back, Lord. <laughs> they weren't getting rain. And they complained at the depot where we take all our fruit to be transported by semis. And the man at the depot said, remember last year? You complained. You said everyone was getting rain except you. This year, you're getting more rain than anyone else. <laughs> God is in the work of teaching us to trust him. I'm glad I left the government. I was in a research station. All right? I left the government to go farming. I learned a lot on that farm. I learned I had to trust God. We had pawpaws, papaya you may call them, loaded from top to bottom, 
fruit ready just before winter. They're all there. And we were hit with a tremendous hailstorm. Tremendous wind, big hail, and it smashed the tops out. It scarred all the fruit. A bleeding white mass that we're finished. It warmed up. They healed over and our agents said they've had good fruit for long enough. They'll take it. And we survived that. But I thought, I am dependent on God. He does it in an instant and you realise how powerful he gets the message across. So when you come to here, we're in Joel and the Bible is telling us, beat your, your plowshares into swords, your spears into pruning hooks, rouse the warriors, come. He's calling to the nations. So you are going to see an immense build-up of weaponry. We're saying, isn't it? You're going to see immense build up of weaponry. And this is what it says. Verse 10 Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side. Please notice your wording. Come quickly. This isn't a short work, this is a quick work. Come quickly, all you nations. They're going to gather. That's why the Euphrates River will dry up to allow the kings of the east to come. There's a gathering of the nations and they're coming here. Gather the nations. It says this, Bring down your warriors, O Lord. I wonder if that a prayer will be had. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. How? Swing the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Where did you read that? You read it in Isaiah. You read it in Revelation. It's the same thing. Are you clear? Swing the sickle. The harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes. The wine press is full and the vats overflow. And this is how he works. So great is their wickedness. You look on the world and we don't see it like God sees it. He is worthy of worship and him alone. And he's watching a world turn their backs on him and worship the creature and created things. And they do not want him in their knowledge. And God has given them over to sexual immorality. It says it in Romans 1. When we don't want him in our knowledge, we are given over to the lust of our flesh, the lust of our hearts. And sexual immorality will become the order of the day and ends in the only place in your Bible lesbianism is there and homosexuality. You are watching it. We are seeing it. It's a flood, isn't it? It's coming in like a flood. Why? We don't want to keep God in our knowledge. The Bible tells us when you don't, I give you up to this. And we are watching a harvest of refusal to keep God in our knowledge. So rebellious, so antagonistic to God is the wickedness of mankind and it's demonstrated by the hatred that is shown to the people that he calls my people, the Jewish nation. You're watching it, aren't you? You are going to see anti-Semitism explode in the middle of the tribulation. 
You think there's a lot now? Just wait. Middle of, and I, I'll be watching from heaven. I don't know where you will be. But I'll be watching from heaven. You'll be in heaven? Well, we'll sit together, brother, and we'll say, I read that in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> what it says here, please go on in your text, otherwise I'll get sidetracked. <laughs> Verse 14, please notice, multitudes, multitudes. What's that? I will gather all nations. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, mine has got. You can look in the word threshing. This is the place where God threshes or God treads or God tramples the wine press. Multitudes and multitudes. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. I'll tell you what you've got. Darkness. What is the sign of Jesus coming? What did he say was his sign? As the lightning shines from one east of heaven to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Your Bible tells you here, the sun and the moon will be darkened. You're not getting their light. The stars will no longer shine. It is plunged into darkness. There is no mistaking the coming of Jesus. The whole world will be lightened by his glory. He's not coming like a baby in a manger. He's coming as the glorified Son of Man and Son of God. He's coming back King of kings and Lord of lords. He is manifesting himself to the world and it's in power and great glory. And all nations will mourn because of him. Even so, come Lord Jesus, is the cry of the believers. Even so, come. There is a cry for God to vindicate the suffering that is unjustly done on the earth. There is a cry. And our response when we read this is, even so, come Lord Jesus. We long for you to set things right. Then he says this, The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. Have you read the last vial poured out on this earth? Every Every island flees away. I teach in the Pacific. I say goodbye, Fiji. I'm going to Tuvalu, which is just above sea level. Goodbye, Tuvalu. Every island fled away. And by the way, Australia is the smallest continent, but it's the biggest island. So goodbye, Australia. <laughs> so terrible is the earthquake, we are told. There's nothing ever been like it on the earth. The cities of the nations fall. No matter how strongly they have built. In Isaiah, Isaiah 24 it says, I will shake terribly the earth. So if God tore the earth apart to give us the flood and gushed out the waters from beneath the world, at this point he's going to shake the whole earth. He is going to shake it. And the hail from heaven in this last great judgment 
is beyond our grasp. What's the object of all this? I'll tell you. Get people to repent. The whole object of unveiling to us what is going to happen, that God is righteous, that God is just, that he's going to judge these kind of things of rebellion against him and all that. He's going to judge it. He's going to step in. The whole object is get them to repent. What is the message to the churches in your Bible? Two churches have no word of reproof. So there's no word of repentance. To Smyrna, to Philadelphia, there is nothing he reproves. But to the other five churches, and by the way, both those churches were suffering, Philadelphia and Smyrna. The other five churches, each one of them is told, repent, because he has identified things in them that are to his displeasure. So he's trimming the lamp, he's getting them to change. That's his object in writing. That's the church. The church is told to repent. Jesus came and literally said in, in Luke 13, repent or perish. Because remember they came to him about this tower that fell and uh, so many were killed. Were they worse sinners? Jesus said, are they worse sinners than anyone else? He said, no, I tell you, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So he repeats the same thing. You come to um, John the Baptist. What did he tell them when they came to him? Repent, change your direction, change your thinking. Turn around, go God's way, is the call. Repent or perish, is the message. What did the apostles preach? They said, he's resurrected Christ from the dead because he has given a day and he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man he has ordained. He calls on all men everywhere to repent. So the whole message of heaven, when God speaks to the world, is always in mercy. Repent! Change! Ezekiel has a lot. And in one section in Ezekiel it says, Turn, turn, why will you die? And there's an amazing section in Isaiah where he says, let the wicked forsake his way. You say, but my way is not wicked. If it's not God's way, it's wicked. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord our God because he is merciful. He will pardon so the call is that. Let me just... What's the time? Twenty? Two thirty-five. All right. Let me give you this before I finish. When you step into the middle of the tribulation, take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 9 and you're in the last two verses. Revelation chapter 9 and the last two. Revelation 9 and we're in verses... 20 and 21. This is after the trumpets have been blown, judgments have taken place on the earth that are terrible. Verse 20. The rest of mankind 
that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. It simply means this. The more the judgment took place, the harder the heart became. Just as Pharaoh hardened his heart with every judgment that took place, you say, but God hardened his heart. No, it also says Pharaoh hardened his. You can't isolate it to an action of God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Here, the inhabitants of the world that weren't killed by these plagues still did not repent. So it tells us when God executes judgment, the object is turn. Why will you die? It's an appeal of mercy every time. Now we are given to understand the lifestyle of the world in this seven year period, the first half. Take your Bible and read on in your text. They did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons, idols, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, idols that cannot see or hear. They are idolatrous. The world is idolatrous. Verse 21 nor did they repent because from idolatry comes lifestyle. Every time in your Bible, idolatry is always associated with a lifestyle. Look at Israel. When they turned to Baal worship, when they turned to worshipping the other gods around them, what did they do? Incest. Read, Luke, uh, read Leviticus 18. The list of incest. When I was in Tahiti, 80% incest in families. 80%. When you come into the scriptures, you're realizing where we lose the knowledge of God, our morals collapse. When we take away the basis for marriage, anything goes. We don't feel wrong anymore. Conscience does not speak. It's hardened against the knowledge of God. So we come to this time here and with the first list is the world has become idolatrous, really idolatrous. Notice the lifestyle. Go down in your last verse, verse 21. Nor did they repent. They didn't repent of their idolatry. Nor did they repent. And there's four things listed. What are they? What's the first? Murder. Sorcery. Immorality and theft. Tell me, the word for sorcery, listen, pharmacist, that is your pharmacy, your drug taking place. That's what it is. So what are you going to see? You're going to see a flood of drug taking in the world. You're watching it happen. Even the governments are concerned. They're trying to stop it because it destroys people, families and nations. It's worse than drink. And it's destroying and it's a money-making business. And we're watching it take the world. And we're doing desperate things to try and stop it. You go into the airport, what are they? They'll sometimes have dogs coming through. When we walk in, they'll take a machine and they'll put it over you like this. Find out whether you've got certain materials on you or not. Why are they trying? They're trying to put a barrier not to let certain things in because they know the damage that happens. Your Bible tells you in this time on the earth drug taking is going to be an immense problem. When you have drug taking, the, the drug scene, what do you always get? It's happening down in Melbourne here. You get murder. 
The whole drug scene is a crime scene, is it? You get theft when you're hooked on drugs. You've got to thieve. You've got to take, haven't you? We have a, a young fellow at home, got saved. Not young, a bit older. <laughs> he got saved. Uh, he'd been in and out of prison all his life. But he, uh, he was a, a drug dealer kind of thing. And uh, he's been in for armed, like, uh, violent reaction against someone in the town where we are. He was brought up. But he got saved through the gospel. Very interesting. He came out and he would trim ginger with us and he's growing. But that fellow used to sell drugs to a, a lady. She's covered in tattoos. Used to sell drugs to a lady called Cindy. When last, last Christmas Eve, last Christmas Eve, they had a meal in the, in the hall where we would meet and she came. He used to sell her drugs. She came. She sat down opposite Margaret at the table we were at and she finally said, I'm lost. I'm lost. Which is the best place to begin. <laughs> that lady has been totally transformed. Totally. It's amazing to listen to her testimony. And this fellow was rung from prison. His two friends from prison rang him and they said, we have heard something that's going on out there. You're not taking drugs anymore. And Cindy's not taking drugs anymore. What's happened? We want to be free. We want to be free. Knowing the chains that drugs have on them. So God is doing something like this. Your Bible tells you that even in this time on the earth you are in, when this is the scene that's going on, God in mercy will still be saving souls. But it won't be the church testifying. It will be the Jews testifying. Our opportunity is now. Their opportunity is coming. Let me say this. The world will never have a more powerful testimony than in the first three and a half years of the seven-year period. There will never have been a more powerful testimony on earth. You say, why? Because there are two men who are in Jerusalem and we know that's where they speak from because when they're killed, their bodies lie in the street of that city where their Lord was crucified. It's in Jerusalem. And you go, you can, you can, there's cameras everywhere, you can see what's happening in that street now on your internet. Their bodies will lie dead. They have finished their testimony of three and a half years. That's their appointed time. 1,260 days or 42 months or time, time and half a time, same period of time. They're given a fixed time but the beast who comes out kills them and no one could kill them. Up to this point, if anyone tried, fire came down and consumed them. You say, impossible. Go read Elijah. Go get me the man of God, said the king. So what did he send? He sent a captain with 50 men. And they said, come down, man of God. He said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And it did. Another man was sent. Go get me the, 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 this prophet. He came to the mountain and he said, come down, man of God. 
He said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And it did. The, the third one said, come down, <laughs> come down, man of God, come down. <laughs> he was humble, he was broken, he approached totally different and God said, go with him. So you have incidents in your Old Testament that are paralleled in your new and that's how you look at Revelation. You take your Old Testament and you begin to see the same things but in more powerful expression in your new because these two men, if anyone tried to kill them, this is how they must die. Emphatic. So no one could touch them. And the whole world hated them. You say, how do you know? Because when they're killed, the whole world, it's Christmas. They send gifts to each other. They're rejoicing. These two who tormented them. You say, how did they torment them? They have power to strike the earth with plagues as often as they wish. They can shut up heaven so it doesn't rain. They can turn water to blood. They strike the earth. If you want to know what those plagues are, go read your trumpets. They are the plagues that hit the earth. At the mouth of these two witnesses, those plagues are given and confirmed from heaven. And I, I'm amazed, and I have got time, but I'll, I'll do this quick. You step into Revelation chapter 8, and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. That's amazing, isn't it? Heaven is a place of worship. Heaven is a place of noise. That's dead silence. Why? We say, the calm before the storm. We have it in our own country. The storm builds and then the wind drops and before it comes the other way, there's a calm and then it comes. So for half an hour, there is silence in heaven. There are seven angels. They're given seven um, trumpets to sound on the earth. But another angel takes the censer which is used to offer up prayers to God. Prayers have gone up for long enough. He takes fire, he puts it on this censer and he hurls it on the earth. And if you read your Bible, the first four judgments are hurled on the earth. That's what happens. Just a picture. But the terrible devastation that takes place is again beyond our comprehension with these. These two men are telling the world what is going to take place just like Moses told Pharaoh. And God will confirm their word and it will happen and the world will hate them but it can't kill them, it can't get rid of them. But at the end of their appointed time they are killed by a man whom we are going to call the beast. At that point he's called the beast the first time in your Bible. He is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the wicked king, the Assyrian, the lawless one, whatever character category you're going to put him in, the little horn, that is him. That's when he becomes that. He's not there at the beginning of the, the, the seven years. He's a man is identified that does something then, but he does not become this beast till the middle of the seven years. When he, someone comes up from the abyss from the past, indwells his body, he's been wounded with a sword to death, and he comes to life.
the counterfeit of the resurrection of Christ. But Christ came with a glorified body. This man has a flesh and blood body. But he comes back to life. So the question the world asks when this personage kills the two witnesses, these are the two questions in your Bible that are asked by the world. Who can make war against the beast? If he's killed two men whom no one could kill, he's killed them. Can we make war against him? Do you see his rise to power? The world asks that question. Who can make war? The next question they ask is this. Who is like the beast? Why? No man has come back from the dead as far as they're concerned, but this man has. So you have two immense happenings and the world questions and from that point on, that man will stand in the temple of God showing he himself is God. Jesus said, when you see, speaking to the Jews, when you see the abomination stand where it not ought to stand. Daniel the prophet spoke of him. He called Daniel a prophet. Daniel the prophet spoke of him. When you see that, you flee. You, you don't take anything. You instantly flee. Because then there will be tribulation such as was not, no, nor ever will be. And except those days be shortened, no flesh will be saved. So when you're reading those words and you impose them on what I've taken you through in Revelation, you understand it's horrific. This is horrific what we have looked at. But it's real. Let me give you one word before I finish. And that's this. Prophecy, when it comes, is history unfulfilled. True? Prophecy, when it comes and is fulfilled, becomes history. There is still prophecy unfulfilled and one day it will become history and we have been covering that. There is prophecy, it's going to be fulfilled, it will be called history in the future because it has been fulfilled. Tell me, do you trust this book? It is the only guide, the only solid ground we have in the world we are in. You can watch your media, you can read your newspaper, you can listen to stories, you can do all kinds of things, but unless you've got a solid foundation here, you and I are going to be shaken by what the interpretation's given to us of what has happened. And I've said this, I determined when I, I wrote the book, uh, and I better announce this before we go. I haven't discussed it with Werner or, or with Gary because we only bought a certain number of books and I just laid them there. I'm not a salesman. I don't bother about selling, but they've all gone, all right? We can send books down, leave them with you, and if people and some people have expressed a wish to be able to read it, then you can get it's $5, the book itself, all right? When I wrote that book, I got to Revelation 17. I would have liked to finish, but I am not clear enough. I've, re I've read many comments, many commentaries. I've gone through and sat at the... But once I feel satisfied, I have grasped Revelation 17 and 18 clearly, I will write. But at present, I am not. Is that clear? So I've stopped at chapter 16. All right? That's the position. In that book... I have tried not to speculate. 
meaning taking things, the events of the world, and trying to impose meaning on them by Scripture. I've tried not to do that. I have done it once. I may be right or I may be wrong. Listen carefully so you're not where I'm going. When Nebuchadnezzar had his vision, you will notice there are four kingdoms. There are never five, there's four, always. In the fourth kingdom, it's iron, the Roman Empire. We know that now because Christ is cut off when Rome was on the earth. But there is an unfinished place in that image. It's the feet and the toes. And we are told they're part iron, part clay. They don't mix. Brittle iron, uh, iron and brittle clay. They just won't mix. NIV has the people are a mixture. They will not cleave together. And I have imposed a meaning and I have said Islam and secular humanism. You are watching it all over the world. As far as I am concerned, they don't mix. Sharia law does not mix at all. I have speculated and said possibly the iron and the clay because it's governmental control that is being given to you. Will you realize that? Babylon had one man ruling, total, gold. Then it decreased in quality. Medo-Persian Empire, you had two empires. Then you come to the Grecian, which is Alexander the Great, but it's split into four, all right? Then you go through the Roman with its senate and all that kind of control. But then you come to the last part and you have ten kings and they come out of the Roman Empire. It's iron, they extend on. But we are told those toes are part iron, part clay. When does this kingdom cease to control Jerusalem, the Jewish people and the Temple Mount? I'll tell you. The stone cut out from heaven, or out of, uh, with our, uh, not human hands, will smash that image in its feet. That's where it hits. Grinds them to powder. Read your Bible. And the whole image is ground to powder. The wind sweeps it all away and from that stone a mountain fills the earth and he says, this is an everlasting kingdom and it will never cease. So when you're reading Nebuchadnezzar's vision, remember you're seeing qualities of governmental control. It says it's inferior. It's the third. The next is this. You're looking at order and quality. But the whole focus as far as Gentile control of Jerusalem is concerned, and it's yet to be, will be ten kings. And behind them will be a little horn. And they will give their power to this one. And he will rise to be the beast. Now I haven't got time to cover all the teaching that goes with it. I've tried to remain within the scriptures for interpretation. Are you clear? I've tried not to speculate but to remain in the scriptures so that scripture with scripture begins to throw light on the subject. We have done very little as you realise. The book will help you if you've got it or give yourself to studying yourself because God can give you understanding and light your eyes. May God bless you as I said we have greatly enjoyed our time with you. We deeply appreciate the hospitality, the fellowship, all that kind of thing. To us, it is very refreshing.
to me, very refreshing. <laughs> All right? So I, I deeply appreciate you in the Lord. I appreciate the fellowship that we can sit down and talk, sometimes more than others. <laughs> but it has been a great time. May God bless you in the time ahead. May he strengthen your hearts. The Lord, and this is my prayer, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the patient waiting for Christ. That's what we're looking for. God bless you.